We're in our series called A White Elephant Christmas. We've been in it for uh, three weeks looking at the, the Christmas story, and maybe uh, you're a guest today and you're, you're new. That's great. Glad you're joining us. Uh, again, this is Christmas sweater weekend. Some sweaters are gorgeous. Some sweaters are far from that. Uh, we're just engaging in the joy of the season. Uh, and in the White Elephant Christmas, there's an old story told of Siam, which is modern-day Thailand, uh, where a king has an obnoxious noble in his court, and he wants to rid himself of the noble. So what he decides to do is give the gift of a white elephant. Uh, a, a sacred and rare animal um, and gives it as a gift to this noble. The noble takes it back to his village and what ends up happening is because it's rare and because it's sacred, people are coming from other villages to come and see it and in some cases coming to worship this rare gift. Um, and what happens is the noble has to has spend a lot of money and spend a lot of time taking care of this white elephant. And what it effectively does, the gift of the white elephant removes this noble from the king's court and basically gets the noble out of the king's hair for a while. Or at least until uh, the noble realizes what's going on and what happened would be that the noble would then re-gift the white elephant to another noble. Um, and th- thus they kind of get the, the idea of where a white elephant uh, Christmas party idea comes from because it's morphed over the days and over the, over the years. Uh, it's morphed to when you go to a white elephant Christmas party, you know you have given a great white elephant gift. If the person receiving it either thinks this or says this, they, they, they say, what am I supposed to do with this? Right? It's, it's just like this bizarre gift. And we've looked at some of those gifts over the last two weeks. But in the Christmas story, and specifically we're looking at Matthew chapter 1 and 2, what we're talking about is the the white elephant gift Christmas, and uh, the white elephant Christmas. In in Matthew chapter 1, you get this this genealogy, this list of ancestors of Jesus, and to us it's like, man, it's like the stuff that puts you to sleep at night when you read it. What's this got to do with, with the story of Jesus? And what it has to do with is, in Jesus' day, your genealogy was your resume, So if you're submitting a resume, if you want status, you want a squeaky clean resume, a great looking genealogy. And what happens is when you crack the gospels and you get to the very first gospel, what you find is a genealogy full of sketchy characters. And Jesus, Jesus ancestors, he's got murderers, adulterers, prostitutes, people who were utter failures in life. And people that you and I might look at like, what's God supposed to do with him? What's God supposed to do with her? And really what that is, is a question that we often ask of ourselves. And we know full well our own propensity to fail. When we replay the tape, replay the, the, the memories of our failures in the past, we often question our value before God, and we wonder, if God thinks about us, we wonder if God is thinking to himself, what am I supposed to do with him? What am I supposed to do with her? But what we find is that Jesus Christ is not afraid to be associated with broken people. He is not afraid to be the friend of the imperfect. And it's not a new concept. It's from the beginning. Grace There is a history to grace, and you find it in the genealogies. In fact, the the genealogy continues to grow. Uh, Those of us who follow Christ, we're added to the family. In fact, a little bit later in the service, if you've never crossed the line of faith, you're going to have an opportunity to join the family. It's not a perfect family. It it can be a dysfunctional family. it's, It's not about getting it all right. 
earning it before you can join. It's about simply admitting your brokenness and allowing Christ to make you whole. So that, that was the, the first weekend. The second weekend, we looked at the, the fact that God is the God who gives the gift of a white elephant. It comes in the shape of the circumstances and the experiences we find ourselves in. It's those moments in life where you say to God, God, what am I supposed to do with this? What, how, am I, how am I supposed to survive in this marriage? How am I supposed to deal with this financial mess? Now I'm unemployed. God, what am I supposed to do with this? What now? We've all been there. We've all asked the questions, some silently in our own minds and hearts, some out loud. But what we discovered last week is that God is the God who gives the gift of a white elephant, and not because he wants to give us a useless gift. He wants to use that situation, those circumstances, and transform it and grow it into something beautiful. And we see this in the, in the lives of Mary and Joseph. Mary gets a white elephant gift. Her gift is an unplanned pregnancy. In the story, the angel tells Mary that the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow her. She's going to conceive a child. His name will be Jesus. She's in the engagement process. And so being pregnant isn't exactly convenient for her. It, it, puts, her, it puts questions in her mind. Uh, but she arrives at this place of understanding who she is and understanding who God is. And she trusts. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be unto me as you have said. Trust. For some of us. Our white elephant moments is just an opportunity to grow trust. It's not easy. It's hard. But we know who God is and we know he's trustworthy. Joseph gets a white elephant gift. He has a white elephant moment. He gets a pregnant fiance. Right? And we know that he wants to re-gift his fiance pretty quick. Right? He, he wants to divorce her quietly. Kind of step back from the scandal. But then an, an angel appears to, to him as well and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to be associated with me, Joseph. Because Jesus is not afraid to be associated with us, right? It's true. Mary has not committed adultery. Mary has not cheated on you. The Spirit has overshadowed her, and the Messiah is conceived in her. We know that Joseph takes a step of obedience. Trust and obey. It, 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 they seem simple, right? Well, how, how hard could it be? Really hard when you find yourself in a white elephant moment. But that's what we discover in the Christmas story. Two people who've been given a gift to just trust and, and obey. And a beautiful story unfolds. A story that people are still talking about. It We're talking about today. And what we're going to do is we're going to pick up uh, Matthew chapter 2 and look at another white elephant gift. Uh, but before I start talking about that, I'm going to invite Isabel to, to join me up here. Is, Isabel is going to read the text for us. Isabel is an RTI student, Reach Training Institute, one of our ministry schools, here, or the ministry school here at Salem Alliance. And uh, thanks, Isabel, for reading scriptures for us this morning. Yeah, if you guys don't have a Bible, you are welcome to grab one in front of the pew in front of you. And it's on page 1,515. And we're going to be reading Matthew 2, verses 1 through 18. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, and as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, 
for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. The Herod called, then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem and went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I, until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal actions fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. This is God's holy word. Thanks, Isabel. So here's what I want to do this morning. I just want, in the time we got left, uh, I'm just talk about this final white elephant gift and just put it out there. Right, it, it, it's Jesus. Jesus is the gift. And you probably expected that, and 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 yet. Knowing who the gift is, what we see in this, in this story of Matthew chapter 2 is we see a variety of responses to the person of Christ. And we see them in, in, in three different uh, groups of characters. And I'm just going to jump right in here and talk about these responses and begin with the, the, one of the central characters in Matthew chapter 2, and that is King Herod. But before you can really fully understand his response, as is played out here, you heard the story, you heard his story about uh, what the early church fathers called the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem. I mean, how, what has this got to do with the Christmas story? And, it, and with Herod, what you need to understand, this is not a blip on the screen for him. This is a lifelong pattern for him. So just, just hear, hear a little bit of the, the context, because Herod was 25 years old when Rome made him the governor of Israel and Judea. 25 years old, he's stepping in and he wants to send a statement. He wants the people he's going to govern to know who is in charge and who is in power. So he's 25 years old and his first year reigning in Israel and Judea, he rounds up uh, a, a rebel in those days. Because there was all kinds of rebellions, there was all kinds of anticipation for a Messiah who would come and rescue the people of Israel. And so he rounds up one of those rebels. His name is Ezekias. He brings Ezekias into the public uh, court and gathers as much of the city as he can. And he has Ezekias publicly executed, sending a statement that this is what happens to those who oppose my rule. That's year one for Herod. And then what Herod does is, after he's sort of threatened and, and scared people, he then begins to try and, and form some alliances. And, and because he's not a Jew, what he decides to do is find the, the most well-known Jewish family in Israel at that time, the Hasmonean family, and he marries into the family by choosing a wife, Miriam. Marries Miriam, and she has high status and position, and Rome likes what they see. 
Rome likes a guy who will do anything to tell people don't rebel, and he loves how influential and political Herod has become. And so in 40 BC, what the Roman Senate decides to do is issue a decree, a new title for Herod. They call him King Herod, King of the Jews. And the Jewish people do not like this title because number one, Herod is not Jewish. Number two, Herod does not practice in worshiping the Jewish God, Jehovah. So they, are, they do not like Herod. And so the rebellions, the insurrections continue. And Herod will stomp out any attempt to loosen his foothold as governor in Israel and Judea. In fact, it doesn't matter how close to him you are. He will make a statement. In Herod's rule, he will execute his brother-in-law. He will execute his mother-in-law. He will also, in his early 40s, become suspicious of his wife and have her murdered. And then two of his sons, that he's suspicious that they are plotting to overthrow the throne, he brings them in and has them executed in brutal fashion. He has them strangled before a crowd, which would prompt Caesar Augustus. Caesar, remember, he's the one who issued the census that got Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, Augustus would say this, it's safer to be Herod's sow than his son. Meaning it's, it's safer to be an animal that belongs to Herod than it is to be his, his son or in any really, his wife. Family isn't safe. Herod's family is not safe. This is a brutal dictator. And uh, Josephus, a Jewish historian, would call him barbaric. Another writer would call him the malevolent maniac. Other terms that are used to him that I can't repeat. Herod is brutal. And then when we get to the end of the story, we, we know the story. The Magi come and they travel hundreds of miles because they've seen a star. And, and, and they know that that is, a, is symbolic. It's a prophetic sign saying that, that there is a newborn king of the Jews. And you heard the story read. When Herod hears that, he's king of the Jews. And the Magi come saying there's a sign in the heavens that there's a newborn king of the Jews. And even though he's, he's older, he's up in years, he is going to take every measure that he can to, to ruin and to destroy any competitor that would seek his throne. And so you get the slaughter of the innocents. You, you get all this pain in Bethlehem. Because here's, here's what you need to know. Herod's response is hostility. The name of Jesus, the gift of the person of Jesus causes hostility to just flow from, from Herod. And, and, it, and it's interesting because I think sometimes, you know, we, we, we think about Christmas and our blood pressure rises because we, we hear, you know, well, you can't say Merry Christmas, you got to say Happy Holidays. Or we get kind of torqued because, you know, the, the nativity scene can't be put in the town square and, you know, the, the blood rises. And, but the long before the, there was the Grinch who stole Christmas and long before someone ever uttered bah humbug, we've got a killer of Christmas right in the story. Friends, it's nothing new. This is, a, this is a response. This is a response to the Christmas story. And Herod takes brutal action. It's Stalin-like. It's Hitler-like in its approach. Slaughter of little baby boys, two years old and younger. 
in an attempt to remove the competition. I want you to feel and see the tragedy of the story, the slaughter in Bethlehem. If this were the village of Bethlehem, this actually would be a little bit larger than what Bethlehem would have been that day. Imagine that. If this were Bethlehem, if you have a son that's two years old or younger, if you have a grandson, a great-grandson, or a nephew who's two years old or younger, will you just stand right now and stay standing? Just stand right where you're at. Now, as they stay standing, I look around. These, we're the village of Bethlehem. These are the mothers. These are the fathers. The grandparents. The aunts and uncles who are weeping in Bethlehem because there's a response of hostility to the name of Jesus. Thanks for standing. You can be seated. That's, that's the first response to Jesus. The, the gift of Christ, there, there often is hostility. It's, it's, it isn't always physical violence. Sometimes it just comes in the form of mockery or it comes in the form of just you know, the cold shoulder. It, it comes in a variety of ways. But hostility is a response. The second response you see in Matthew chapter 2 is a little bit, it's buried in here a little bit. Verse 3, it says, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, when the Magi told him there was a newborn king of the Jews, as was everyone in Jerusalem. And so what he does is he calls a meeting, a little conference, and he invites leading priests and teachers of religious law to ask where the Messiah is supposed to be born. See, if you have a question, a biblical question, or you know, a, a, a prophetic question, because there are all kinds of prophecies about a Messiah to be born. And if you don't know that, you call priests, and you call teachers of religious law. Uh, who are these folks? Priests are, are men who are offering sacrifices, offering prayers, incense, to, to mediate between humanity and God. They're the, they're the, they are the mediator. They're the ones who help you approach God. The, the, the religious teachers of the law, these are the ones who have the information about, about things like where a Messiah would be born. So Herod gathers them and poses the question, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they quickly answer, because they know Micah chapter 5. They, they know Micah 5 too, where it says, but out of you, Bethlehem, will rise a ruler whose origins are, whose origins are from a distant past. He, they know the answer. These religious leaders, these priests, they, they, can, they can supply that answer to Herod, and they do. But here's what you need to understand as far as the, the second response to the gift of Christ. In your, in your mind's eye right now, picture a nativity scene. Just picture a nativity scene. Maybe you drive by one in town, or maybe you have one in your home. Now, as you have that pictured in your mind, who's there? Who's, who's, who's in the nativity scene? Okay, we're, we, we know Jesus, right? Because it's kind of all about him. <laughs> right? He's the center of the story. Jesus is there. Joseph and Mary. Shepherds. We've got some sheep mixed in. And maybe there's a star. And perhaps there's an angel. And there's the wise men. There's the magi, right? That's the nativity scene. Who's not there? That's the more important question. Who's not there? We have outsiders outsiders who have traveled hundreds of miles to come and worship and offer gifts to the newborn king, the Messiah. 
They've, they've pressed, they've endured, they've shown stamina, and they've gotten to Jerusalem, the epicenter of religious activity. They find the guys in the know. They ask the question that everyone's been waiting to answer. Who is the Messiah? Where will he be born? And these guys, they know the answer. Magi travel hundreds of miles, and religious leaders and priests won't even make a six-mile trip. Think about this. Outsiders push past obstacles bringing gifts to worship. And insiders, people who are so close, just six miles from Bethlehem, and they do not make the journey. The second response is a response of indifference. See, it had become all too academic for them. Their, their anticipation of the Messiah, uh, their, their, their relationship with their God had become about data gathering and knowing the right things and being able to recite the right verses, but it hadn't translated into a desire to come and worship. It was, it was indifference. It had all been about knowing the right answer, and people had traveled from afar and, and paid great cost to come and worship, and here were insiders who knew all the information but indifference kept them from going to be a part of this scene at the manger. Friends, could that be this, the same for us? Could we be so close? Could we be so familiar with the Christmas story that we all we just kind of know what's going to come next? And it leads to calluses, and it leads to indifference, and it just leads to this sort of this intellectual ascent of who God is and who God's son is and the wonder of Christmas is lost. I've got three grandkids um, and my oldest is a granddaughter. Her name is Finley. Here's a picture of her in front of her Christmas tree. Uh, she's got a little dog down there on the left-hand side. Um, this is her in front of that same tree. She's singing. Uh, she loves Christmas. Uh, she just loves Christmas. You know, some of your kids, some of your grandkids, or your nieces and nephews, you know, you, they're counting down the days to Christmas, right? Or they got one of those paper chains, and they're just kind of breaking off a, a link every day so they can visually see how close it is to Christmas morning. They are full of anticipation. Finley doesn't do the, the chain thing. She doesn't count how many days. She counts how many sleeps are left until Christmas. She's very excited because tonight there's no more sleeps left for the Christmas party at great-grandpa and great-grandma's house tonight. So she's excited about that, and she knows there's four sleeps left until Christmas morning. Uh, about a month ago, I had Finley on my lap, and I asked her, you know, Finley, what do you, what, what do you want for Christmas? And with precision and determination, she tells me, Papa, I want a flashlight, and I want a pair of gloves. <laughs> okay, um, why, why a flashlight, and why, why a pair of gloves? Well, so I can go hike in the woods at night and see where I'm going, and so my hands aren't hurt by the pokey things in the forest. <laughs> okay. Uh, and so, uh, you know, a week later, we're having the conversation again, and, and she's the same thing. Flashlight, pair of gloves. I mean, even last week, flashlight, pair of gloves. And then last week, last week she asked me the question, Papa, have you, have you FaceTimed Santa yet to tell him I want a flashlight and, and, and pair of gloves? I'm thinking, uh, we used to write letters. 
Uh, didn't know you could FaceTime Santa. Uh, so I'm scrounging, and I, I, I know I hear about there's this phone number that you can call, and not FaceTime, but you can leave a voicemail message. I, I texted that to uh, her mom and dad, and, and Finley's made her, made her phone call and asked for a flashlight and, um, and a pair of gloves uh, for Christmas. So we have made sure that there was a flashlight and a pair of gloves underneath the Christmas tree for Finley from Papa. And, and she is just full of wonder, full of anticipation for Christmas morning. And she's going to grow up. And the wonder is going to dissipate. And the beauty of Christmas is going to fade. Pressures of life could cause that. Stresses in her life could cause that. Familiarity with the story could cause that. Is it any wonder why Christ would say to his followers, you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, become like a child? That's a great phone thing. Uh, <laughs> that's somebody important. <laughs> Um, is it any wonder for us the familiarity, the stresses, the pressures causes all the wonder to fade and Jesus would say, become like a child. Not childish, childlike, right? Become like a child. Why? Because a child is full of wonder at the thought of of a baby sent from above. Who is the child? Christ. For Herod, the response to the Christmas story, the response to Jesus is hostility. For the, for the religious leaders and the priests, it's indifference. And you know, you can probably tell this is going with the wise men, that their response is worship. It's, it's persevering worship. It's bringing gifts at great expense to yourself so that you can have an opportunity to worship. And this is where I really want to make sure that you understand this in this whole series of White Elephant Christmas. You see, the gift is put before you and me, before us, the gift of Christ. What's our response? More importantly, what's your response? Jesus is asking the question today, what are you going to do with me? Your response could be hostility. You, you may, I mean, grandma may have drug you here today and you came kicking and screaming. And you're, you're logging time. And I'm talking about Jesus and the blood pressure's rising. And can I just say to you, it's not that you're gonna go do anything violent, but perhaps this Christmas season you could transition from hostility and just move to a, even a place of skepticism to ask your questions. Do you know that Jesus Christ is not afraid to be investigated? It's, it's come and see. Take, take a quick, take a look. Take your time. Ask your questions. Jesus has nothing to hide. But here's the question, do you? Do you? Maybe you just need to move from hostility to skepticism and investigate the claims of Christ. And that's a new journey for you to begin this Christmas. Or perhaps you're here today and you find yourself in a place of indifference. You've got all the information. You can all the information. You can recite all the data. You can you can point out all the Bible verses. But when you think about it, you're, you're so close and yet you're so far. Because the desire for the friendship has faded. 
this Christmas, you, you could pray a prayer like, like this. This is from a book called The Pursuit of God. A guy named A.W. Tozer, he prayed this prayer. Oh God, I have tasted your goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed at my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. Could it be this Christmas that you would just pray an honest prayer, God, I want to want you. I'm ashamed of my lack of a desire. And I just, I just want to pray that I want to want you. I want to move from indifference to worship. Or perhaps you're here today and you are a worshiper. It's easy for you to sing the Christmas songs. The desire is there. Or maybe you're here today and this Christmas is a season for you to cross the line of faith and become a worshiper and become a friend of God, to join the family. C.S. Lewis wrote these words. He said, the son of God became a man to enable men to become the sons of God. What Lewis is saying here, God sent his son who set aside all the glory of heaven, humbled himself, took on flesh, so that you could join the family. So that you could become sons and daughters of the most high God. How's that happen? Well, Brian showed this quote from Tim Keller in week one of a series. Keller writes, Christmas is the end of thinking you are better than someone else. Because Christmas is telling you that you can never get to heaven on your own. God had to come to you. It is telling you that people who are saved are not those who have arisen through their own ability to be what God wants them to be. Salvation comes to those who admit how weak they are. How do I join the family? How do I go from captivity to freedom? From being weighed down by my guilt from the past, my shame from, the, from past mistakes, to a new start is simply by admitting you're weak, admitting you're broken, putting your faith in a Christ who promises to take all that burdensome guilt and shame and wipe you clean, give you a fresh start, and deposit in you new life, and you become family. Some of you have some really painful family experiences. And I'm, I'm so sorry because that's caused all kinds of wounds in your life. But I want to tell you something about God. He is a good dad. If you never had a good dad, he is the dad that you've longed for your entire life. And he says, he, he literally tells us, you call me Papa. When he's teaching his disciples to pray, he says, this is, this is what you do. You pray Papa. And you can, you can have a new dad because God sent his son. So here's what I'm to do this morning. I want to just give us a chance to personally respond. Right where you are, just bow your heads, close your eyes, pray your prayers. If you've come in this morning with hostility, would you just begin an investigative search into the claims of Christ? Just, it could be even with, with skeptical overtones. That's okay. 
God meets us right where we're at. He's okay with that. And just pray those prayers at the beginning of that journey. Or maybe it's a prayer of an indifferent heart, a prayer that simply says, I want to want you. Or maybe it's the beginning of a friendship, joining the family. If you're beginning that friendship this morning, you know, the, the words aren't all that important. What's important is your heart and sincerity of heart. But you could pray something like this. Just begin by admitting to God that you're broken, you're imperfect, and you're sinful. It's a tough words to say, but that's where we start. And then what you do is you tell Jesus, you realize that he is perfect, that he is the son of God. And you go to the one who is perfect and you ask him to forgive you, to cleanse you, to transform your brokenness into wholeness, to transform your depression, your gloom, your despair, and the joy. Invite him to be the leader and forgiver of your life. Now, God, you've heard our prayers. You know right where we're at. You love it when people begin a new journey in seeking you. You appreciate transparent, authentic hearts that say, this is where I'm at and I don't want to be here. And there's great celebration in heaven when any time, at any moment, when someone joins the family. There's a celebration in heaven this morning. So Lord, we come from a long ways and some from very short places, but we've come to worship. Receive our worship this Christmas. May there be a great smile on your face as you watch your children, your sons, your daughters, adore you.